0: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Testing one, two, three. Looking good. All right. So welcome back to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond, and today we are way beyond the Mediterranean. We just finished uh, an Atlantic Passage from Cape Verde, Mindelo, Cape Verde, to Grenada. It took us 17 days for the passage. It was, uh, what, 2,200 nautical miles. So we averaged a little over five point, I think we averaged, what did you think, John, 5, about? 5.25. 5.25 knots. Uh, over that 17 day period of time so a pretty good passage all of it was well almost all of it was downwind we did run the engine for about one day when we went through some doldrums and we had some pretty rough weather early on in the passage so we had all all sorts of weather in the passage but it was all downwind so the boat was always rolling back and forth and back and forth, and never on a never on a heel from that you would get from a broad reach, which I find more comfortable than going dead downwind. My two crew members are John Fluitt and Mike McGuire. Mike is from Connecticut, and John is from Britain, and I'm going to let them talk. I want them to both talk to me about, uh, both of them are boat owners, and... Both of them. Uh, John sailed with me all the way from Lanzarote uh, in the Canary Islands down to Cape Mindelo, and then across to Grenada. And Mike joined us in in uh, in Mindelo, Cape Verde, and sailed across to here.
1: After all the work was
0: done. After, and he got on the boat after it was all provisioned, and just uh, we just took off. He was a rock star. <laughs> you took
1: him out for dinner, in
0: fact. Yeah, we took him out for dinner. Well, so hold on, hold on. We're going to have to pass around the microphone because <laughs> we're in the cockpit. I'm using my old handheld recorder, and uh, so I'm just going to pass the microphone around and let them tell us about uh, and I'm going to ask them questions, and you can repeat the questions if you need to. But I'm going to hand it over to John. John was responsible for provisioning the boat and putting together a, a list of food that we wanted to have on the boat and also the, the menu for the boat. So he was, he was key in planning for the passage. And so I'm going to hand the microphone over to, to, to John, have him tell us a little bit about his background. He's a boat owner and where he sails and uh, his observations of the passage. Here you go, John.
1: Well, hello. I'm uh, I'm John. Uh, owned a boat, well, I owned a series of boats throughout my career starting with dinghies and so on. Uh, but since 2006 I've uh, owned a Dufour 40 Performance which is a a performance cruiser effectively and we've cruised that between Northwest Scotland uh, just short of Portugal and northern Spain and the Spanish r- Rias, Bay of Biscay, northern France, Ireland, and uh, and Wales. So fairly extensively, and uh, do fifteen hundred to two thousand nautical miles a year on average. So uh, out of the marina quite a lot and uh, enjoy it. Uh, it's mainly an occasion for meeting up with friends and family, spending time together and. Uh, And key for us is eating well, Um, which in terms of provisioning, uh, we try and make the evening meal and other meals as well, actually, part of uh, the bonding together time, uh, time for spending time with friends, enjoying it and having good food as well. So uh, I understood from Franz that... I think you said Franz, you lost twenty five pounds or or so on your
0: in my first crossing and you have on my first crossing, yes, but on this crossing no, I think I've gained weight
1: so so I was frightened to death he was going to go and go and tell his wife that he'd lost weight again, but we've uh, narrowly averted that so um, so in essence the the philosophy was somewhat different um, so uh, there was the uh, some minor battles as to what we brought and keeping it simple and all the rest but uh, the consensus we arrived at seemed to work fairly well um, how we did it well, key to that was having a wife who's an excellent cook and was prepared to help me um, with menus that she knew and uh, had known from her own experience of being on the boat were fairly easy to prepare so we collated a list um, um, we did it in age order to start with. So for the first five days, um, and bear in mind at this stage, I didn't realise that Franz's fridge is so effective that so the bottom is effectively a freezer. That would have changed things um, a little bit. But we banked on the first five days being covered by fresh food um, and then uh, some longer life items going into the next... Sort of ten and then towards the end of the passage and we were estimating 25 for provisioning with uh, another five days of contingency um, towards the end it was going to be tins and pasta and relatively uh, long life foods and um, and we broadly followed that except we had fresh food for quite a lot longer and in fact tonight after four, uh, six or seven days, uh, been in Grenada we've just finished off the potatoes which was still in great nick and onions are still going so uh, and some eggs so some of those items stay for quite significant periods of time so and then having sorted out the order of w- the food we do I also knew that my tolerance to uh, cooking at sea uh, was not that great in the first three days. So for both passages from Lanzarote and from Cape Verde, uh, I pre-prepared, pre-cooked uh, meals and was intending to store them for three days. Uh, and in fact, it was four days on the way out from uh, Mindelo. Um But that was before I realised we could freeze things, so uh, that could have uh, gone much longer in the passage. So the next thing was how to shop. So we, Maggie, my wife, went through and uh, assembled all the ingredients and then I arranged them in a spreadsheet and um, the, the sort of arrangement of a supermarket. So we had da- dairy, fresh food, tins, pastas and uh, herbs and all those sort of things in different columns. And then we knew there were two reprovisioning points. So uh, the fresh food we knew from Lanzarote, we had a nine-day passage, I think. Um, So we could practically have fresh food for the entire way. But we knew we could replenish with fresh food from the markets in uh, Mindelo and uh, meat as well. Um, So we broke it down into two uh, lists for those two ports um, and then the bonus to it all was that Franz and his friends on the previous leg uh, caught a 50 or 60 pound tuna which apart from making a complete mess of his boat in landing it um, meant that they'd packaged uh, three tuna steaks and put them in the freezer section of the uh, the fridge so we could have gone around the world on tuna I think but... Um, in the end we ate as much as we could and ditched the remaining bits. So that in a nutshell is how provisioning was done.
2: So what was
0: your motivation for coming on the trip?
1: So the motivation for coming on the trip, there's a question and uh, several things one is uh, I have a very capable boat that would be um, utterly convinced that it would be really happy doing this sort of journey uh, so would I do it in the future was the question to be asked there uh, the second one was uh, my boat hadn't been uh, launched at all for the first time since 2006 due to a combination of circumstances last summer and uh, so it occurred to me that I could sign up a crew on other things and this sort of trip was feasible and uh, and the third was, it's been a long-held ambition that I was a bit wondering whether I'd ever be able to fulfil, would be to sail across the Atlantic. Um, so that that was the motivation behind doing it, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, and I would do it again.
0: So tell us how you've gone all the way across, because you did a part, the initial leg on, on another
1: boat. Yep. So... Um, the the first leg of this for me was started in Lisbon, and uh, got uh, linked via the internet to a skipper who's actually right here in this marina, and uh, the two crews have got on really well together. Um, so that leg took me to Lanzarote, um, and coincidentally, Franz set out from a marina within ten kilometres of the one I'd ended the previous trip. So effectively I've sailed from Lisbon to Gran Canaria, uh, to uh, Grenada, um, which has been very satisfying.
0: So we have done the full passage, okay. So Mike, uh, what was your motivation? Tell us about your boat, your experience, and uh, your impression of the trip.
2: Right. <clears throat> Hi, my name's Michael McGuire, from Stanford, Connecticut. I've been sailing for quite a while. Started in dinghies, like most people did, and morphed into uh, uh, big boats racing, so on and so forth. Did a bunch of uh, Bermuda races. Closer, a little closer, about six inches
1: away. Six inches.
2: All right. Did about uh, I don't know, twelve or thirteen Bermuda races, something like that. And uh, ended up buying my current boat, which is a the older Pearson 37. um, uh, Yeah, Pearson 37 from the 1982 version. looks nothing like a Pearson. Nobody knows what it is when they see it. I never even heard of it, but I bought it in 13 minutes off of eBay. So when it came up, because a buddy of mine, who I trusted implicitly, uh, they were trying to sell the boat to his dad, who I also knew, and I also knew his dad was a perfectionist, and as this guy Danny said, Danny goes, Mike, if my dad buys his boat, he'll be dead before it hits the water, because it needed a lot of work. So So I proceeded to uh, get that boat together, and I primarily raced it. So we did a lot of distance racing with the boat. Uh, Not so much cruising, but I'm getting pretty bored with the distance racing issue. So uh, uh, my interest is really looking at that boat. Was it a suitable boat? Was it grunty enough for doing some offshore work? And I'm pretty sure it is. It's got a pretty solid setup. But the interesting thing was I had always been interested in this boat, which uh, uh, Franz's Bristol Channel Cutter, since I was maybe 1920, I picked up that boat from Lyndon Larry Pardee. And I was I was really intrigued by that boat, not so much the first one, but the second one, the twenty nine foot footer, which is very similar to this boat. So, and, and I stumbled across Franz by looking for the maker of the wind vane that he has on board, and then this video pops up of Franz measuring the wind vane in the Mediterranean or something like that. Clicking a, a long story short, a click in a few of his uh, uh, his podcasts then he pops, like, within a week or so, pops up with this thing, hey, anybody interested in doing various legs in the Atlantic? So I shot him over an, uh, an email saying, yeah, definitely interested. I'll take your longest and roughest, because I kind of wanted to see what this boat was all about. Um, w- w- what else do you want me to um, talk about?
0: What was your impression of the trip? Did it meet your expectations, I guess? Yeah,
2: Yeah, you, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's <laughs> changing from racing, where, you know, every four hours you're coming up and you got to change a sail when you come up because you know the crew going off. I mean, they just don't know what they're doing, right? So they, need, you know, so you need to really trash talking with those guys who so are changing sails and keeping on top of things. But this is a different thing. It's uh, there's no rush, you know. It's like uh, we need to reef. I mean, or maybe set more sail. Well, well, wait till the sun comes up. You know that kind of thing, as opposed to blasting right through it. So it 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 was. I have to say this. It was the. It's harder or more technically challenging from a sailing standpoint. Leaving my harbor, which is kind of rock-strewn, getting out into Long Island Sound and doing a point-to-point race, because there's a lot more involved. This was so straightforward, because we were basically at night, we had was Jupiter and, uh, and Venus, Mars, yes. Venus and Jupiter right in front of us, You know, head for those two. And you know the sail setups were, were um, the boat, it's just a great boat, it's a fast boat. We kind of toned it back a little bit because the seas were pretty rough and we, we did not want to stress out the rig too much um but it's a great sea boat handled really well rolls any boat's going to roll in, in those kind of conditions yeah. but and this boat is just so well set up for that so you know i got to see what this boat was all about but <clears throat> in the same t- token I, I bought a kindle and i'm, I'm reading uh, you know I, I downloaded a bunch of different books and one of them is uh brian toss's book on rigging and there other books about, you know, offshore boats, so on and so forth. And if, like John, like, you know, like John's boat, my boat, I think, is completely capable of doing this. Uh, the only thing you have to, I have to worry about on my boat is having an exposed spade rudder. You say, well, how do you mitigate that? You can't. The best thing to do is then have a life raft. <laughs> so And there is a life raft on this boat. But uh, if you're going to hit something in the water, you're going to have some time to uh, to get in a life raft if, if that happens, if, if the rudder gets jackhammered up into the hull and you got a big hole in the back of the boat. We're, we're, we're a leaking hole that you can't stop um, but overall I mean the trip it, it got a little dicey and I won't even say dicey it's your standard thing you know you go out sailing and you're trying to go deep enough to work around a point well that's what we found ourselves coming in around the bottom of Grenada Or you know sailing deep and the sails flopping back and forth and you know here we are you're back into the same oh what's the biggest issue you have to worry about in sailing it's called land right you're hitting something or there's some offline rocks and stuff like that but uh, other than that, it was uh, it was a it wasn't an easy ride, but it wasn't a hard ride, and it was uh, and it wasn't it seemed like 17 days stuck with the same two characters, but it wasn't like it was just easy. The whole passage was a pleasant, easy, very enjoyable, because you know you're on a great platform. It's one thing if I was, you know, I would probably be a bit more nervous if I was on my boat, but uh, since you know I don't have any responsibility for this boat, so I was <laughs> no, just kidding. The um, but it but it's such a, a well built boat and, and you can just tell when you get on it and it's just uh, you know this is this is a creature for the open ocean this boat is.
0: So tell them about the knockdown.
2: Uh, oh, oh it's, yeah. Franz is asking me to tell them about the knockdown. So I guess. Um, two days out. Yeah, two days out. I, I know I had uh, I, I don't have any internet now, but when I had internet back in uh, Lanzarote, I mean. Uh, Cape Verde. I did see that it was going to get start to get sporty late Monday into Tuesday and Wednesday. With at least what they had, and that was windy. Was looking at um, uh, in the low thirties and the gusts. So I guess it was Tuesday night because uh, we left Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Maybe it was Monday night, Tuesday night. I don't. We we had three times. We had three or four to three, three or four times. Three, yeah, water in the cockpit. I, I was on watch every single time. So. <laughs>
1: Good could, choice.
2: Yeah, yeah. could have been uh, I was moving the boat. And I think, actually, I'm pretty sure I'm convinced of it now. I let the boat get too slow in these waves. And I let it get slow because uh, I didn't know the rhythm of the boat. And, and when this boat gets going, it starts to hum. You know, when it really gets in the groove. If it's humming steadily, you're too fast. You back it off. You can just roll the sail in a little bit. And just you want to intermittent hum. I didn't know that at the time. So I was kind of worried about We were in some pretty steep waves. They were probably four meters four meters, yeah, in, in that range and so they're coming up, but the um, yeah, so in the, the knockdown, I guess, the middle of the night, and we've got water in, in five gallon jugs, four cans, on, or four plastic jugs tied in on each side and I heard this thing coming, I was uh, I was in the port side uh, set uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, port side of the cockpit and I didn't see this thing, but I heard it coming, and it was like a freight train and I think what it was just throughout the trip it was really interesting we we kept on seeing uh, alternative swell patterns in the in the main swell and this is one of those and it just built up and it came right and i mean maybe we're up a little bit high heading a little bit too too much north of west and this thing just clipped us and i just remember looking over i heard it and i got ready for it and then it it was like this exploding white flower into the cockpit <laughs> boom I got thrown into the back, into the once. So I got to have my, I think I had my life vest on. I know I had the life vest, but I don't know if I had a clipped yeah. in or not, tethered in. Um, and I guess John got pinned, he was in his berth. he got pinned in his berth. It was a the quarter birth by a bunch of, heel tuster and during that one, by a bunch of toolboxes, which fell on top of him. Um, so the first thing I did is when I popped up, you know, uh, gathered my wits about myself, my first thought was, we got a long way to go. Has the water? And I looked over on both sides. I have a, my my, my life looked my light on, looked on both sides. On both sides, all four jugs of water were overboard, hanging on by the lines as we're like clipping along at a, at a pretty good clip. So, um, so I went forward and pulled those out, and I'm going like, you know. Like, the hell are these guys <laughs> you know like uh, banging on and stuff <laughs> like I didn't realize John was pinned in and, and Franz is like trying to get him unpinned and stuff like that because those four or five gallon things dragging through the water on these they were like marshmallows <laughs> so trying to pull those things up, up was not an easy thing particularly on the weather side um but yeah like you can jump in on that one on the uh, on the knockdown with what happened to
1: you <clears throat> well the inside perspective was uh, uh, because I was on the starboard side uh, where this wave came from was just a phenomenal bang as it hit the side um, and then this plaintive cly from the cockpit which you've just heard the originator of describing it <clears throat> but um, there were toolboxes along a shelf next door to me so uh, they all decanted themselves boxes and spanners and the whole nine yards um, into the bunk uh, on top of me. So uh, Franz, as cool as a cucumber, although he professed otherwise, um, went to the heads for reasons best known to himself. <laughs> With various, um, yeah, sort of slightly shady references being made. But um, he came across as super cool. So all of us were cool then. Um, and it didn't take long to sort out. In fact, very little water had actually come into the boat, into the cabin, that is. Um and after the initial uh, sort of surprise um and our observation that the crew outside were doing okay, we rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, for me, I was sitting in the uh the port pull out berth or we didn't i didn't pull it out for the passage, but this port berth and basically, I was laying on the side of the hull when i when it went over, I was like. The boat heeled over about forty-five degrees. Instead of laying on my cushion, I'm laying on the hull of the uh, of the of the berth. But it was a uh, you know everybody wants to have these horror stories. That's what everybody wants to. And you know I posted it on my uh, my tracking website, and everybody's calling up my wife saying, "Is okay? Is he okay?" And really, it was only a one-time issue. The other issues we had were the configuration on the sailing of this boat in downwind sailing was basically we had um, one or two reefs in the main for the most part we had the full main out for a, a shorter period of time but for the most part it was uh, at least one reef in the main and I only have two reefs in my main, I don't have three reefs in my main I have a deep first and a deep second reef and, uh, and then we had the uh, spinnaker pole pulling out the, the uh, lapper the jib uh, to the other side, so wing on wing is what our configuration of sails was. We would we would um, um, use a preventer to keep the boom from flying back and forth. But we did get backwinded off and on, and that would keep it from doing an accidental jibe. But what we found was, uh, and I've never done this for days on end, so I've never had this experience. But we, the jaws of the spinnaker pole started wearing through the uh, through the jib sheets. And we broke what twice, twice. or twice, yeah, twice. We, twi- we twice we broke jib sheets. Fortunately, I'd already had new jib sheets ready to go. Uh, the previous jib sheets had lasted since I launched the boat uh, in 1990, so I mean they were in great shape. But that was the first set of jib sheets that went through, and we could have end for ended that and uh, been fine, but we just said, well, let's just put up the new jib sheets and then. I was surprised when we were really careful on the second set of jib sheets that uh, it still wore through. But again, I don't know that I really need to worry about this because I don't think in my future I'm going to be having my spinnaker pole up for days and days and days on end. But literally the spinnaker pole was up pretty much the entire passage all the way across. I did buy another sail to be able to go wing on wing. And I decided not to use it. I liked using the main instead of uh, the two head sails. And I think the boat handled better. I think it cut down a little bit of the roll by having the main up as opposed to two head sails. Uh, but since I didn't do two head sails, I don't know for sure. But do you want to have a comment on that, John? Do you have anything to say? Uh,
1: Yeah, I'd uh, support support what Francis the microphone problems uh, saying uh, I'm sure using the main gave a lot more stability than having all the drive at the front but the main was really a steadying sail and the, the uh, jib was the main driver so most of the time the jib was fully out and but uh, an easy matter to wind in quite quickly to reduce speed when we de- declared it necessary. Perhaps I can just give you some impressions of the the trip from my perspective. And uh, there's an army of people going alongside us, all with uh, luggage and wheels going down a uh, walkway. So, uh, and there must be 30 or 40 people. Um, Yeah, for for me, one of the, well, easily the best thing was uh, the crew. Um, we were all quite different brought very different things to the party uh, but melded together really well uh, had some great conversations lots of laughs and uh, we completely trusted each other so two people would be asleep for uh, eight hours during the night we did four hours on and eight hours off and you could go to sleep knowing that all was going to be well you you weren't frightened that people weren't keeping watch or keeping the speed right and all those sort of things so uh, the crew and the way we got on together was absolutely brilliant and a major part of adding to the enjoyment of the passage
2: all right
0: that's pretty much it for the crossing but i just wanted we've had it we've been in uh in Grenadas uh what five six days now and we rented a car for three days and drove around the island <laughs> And uh, they drive on the wrong side of the street here, and so the uh, the designated driver was John, and he did a tremendous job <laughs> driving. And we would we would not have survived the three days driving around this island in a car without John driving. So, do you have any Mike? Do you, what's your impression of uh, of Grenada? My impression of Grenada? Yeah. What do you think of the, what we've seen, what we've done, what we've seen? So.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, years ago he used to be a charter captain in the Caribbean, and that's it's pretty indicative of most of the Caribbean islands. You know, it's um, striving to come up, and so there's a lot of uh, disparity here. And I gotta say the <laughs> the roads here are, are are absolutely amazing. Some of the uphills and downhills. I don't know how John was did this. I mean, he said he's. He's got a sports car back in Devon that he's riding down single tracks. That's the only way. Because I, I, I couldn't have dealt with those roads, the, the ups and downs of it. And it seems like every 100 yards you're turning yeah. onto a new stretch, which it looks exactly like the last stretch you're on. <laughs> so, uh, up and down the crags and stu- uh, craggy uh, terrain and things like that, because it is a volcanic island. Yeah. Although the last thing I did to mention, the, uh, if anybody is interested in playing chess, this uh, Fr- Franz is a is a diehard chess player and it was a, a mandatory requirement that we play chess in the evenings uh, and so it turned out at 29 to 0 that was uh, Franz wins over me and then I finally got one on him somewhere in there and then uh, I didn't I did come through two nights ago and beat him again so we're 30 actually yeah, it's 33 to two because okay. I lost again today.
0: You have, John, you have any comments on the island?
1: Um, well, well, certainly driving was uh, an interesting experience, as has been described. But um, I thought I... I've been accused of being heavy-footed earlier on, driving around here, and I guess at home most people would say I'm fairly positive about uh, an approach to driving. But um, I was off the scale here... I was overtaken whenever there was an opportunity by trucks and buses and all sorts. Um, Not that they got anywhere because, of course, they just sat in front of me or, in the case of the buses, stopped. So it seems to be the local pursuit is overtaking anything that their perception is they could do slightly better so it was it was interesting but we saw some great things we went some waterfalls uh, had great fun in a chocolate factory uh, hopelessly uh, lost in trying to decide which was the right flavor to go for Um, but learning a lot about the process and uh, and the various plants um and uh, we've enjoyed uh, some indifferent meals out um which were interesting perhaps more interesting than the good ones but um we've had some great meals out too um uh, and a lot of fun
0: all right that's going to finish out the podcast uh this episode the website for sailing in the mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com again MedSailor.com Life is short. In the end all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. I'm going to be selling my boat. It's got to the point where my family can't join me on the boat. I've got four grandkids, and uh, my boat is never going to be able to handle my family anymore. My wife is getting to the point where it's difficult for her to get in and out of the boat. She's 70 years old. I'm going to be 70 years old in July. And it's just a lot more work than I can handle at this point in time. It's becoming more and more difficult for me to do all the work on the boat that is required to keep the boat in the shape that I like to keep it in. So I've put a web page on the website, which is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. There's another website called medsailors that's not my website. That's a that's a charter website. But my website is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. And I put some details on my boat, which is up for sale. If you are interested in possibly buying my boat, I think the best way to really evaluate my boat is to actually sail my boat. And over the next two years, I plan on moving my boat up to Florida, or maybe a little north of Florida if I need to get out of the hurricane zone, maybe up to uh, South or North Carolina, wherever it is where I end up out of the hurricane zone, and uh, leave it there to sell it. I'm going Next year, I plan on moving it up to Puerto Rico. Currently, it is in Trinidad, so I'm going to be doing the whole length of the Caribbean over the next two summers. No, excuse me, next two winters. I'll probably start sailing this next winter in January, maybe the middle of January, and sail for two, maybe two and a half months, working my way up to Puerto Rico. And so people that are interested in the boat, I will give the opportunity to join me for a period of time on that trip up. It will not be free. Basically, I will sell you an option to buy the boat. And if you decide to exercise that option, then the value of that option would be applied to the purchase of the boat, I'm thinking probably $2,000 for uh, sailing with me for a week so you can evaluate the boat, and that would be that $2,000 would be considered a uh, an option, a purchase option on buying the boat at the listed price. If you choose to exercise that option, then the price of the option would be applied to the boat. If not, then you lose that. I don't want to have people joining me on the boat just to get a free trip. That's not what I want. If I I want to have people with a free trip, then it's going to be people I know or friends or families or clients. But if you're interested, people that are interested in my boat are a very specific group of people. It's a Lyle Hess design, Bristol Channel Cutter, Hull number 71. The hull was built at Sam Moore's Boat Company in California. I finished the boat myself. I took five years to finish it. I did a hell of a job finishing it. I'm proud of it. What sets my boat apart from almost all the other Bristol Channel cutters that are for sale on the Internet is my bulwarks are all teak. The problem with Sam Moores building his boats in, in Costa Mesa, California, was he used mahogany for the, uh, for the bulwarks. And he varnished them, and they look great until the varnish starts deteriorating. And you have to protect that wood. Well, with teak, you do not have to worry about it. Teak is designed to take anything you can throw at it. I've kept the boat, when I'm not sailing the boat, under a full cover for pretty much its entire life. So the bulwarks are all teak. You don't have to worry about sanding them. At one point in time, I put a sort of a semi-varnish on it called a sea and... It started flaking and I just let it go. I just let the sun burn it all off. And you can still see little pieces of it around where the sun never hit. But I don't have to worry about painting my boat and maintaining those bulwarks. That by itself is probably worth at least $30,000 because teak is not cheap and it's much more expensive now than it was when I built it. But it wasn't cheap when I built the boat. So that's a big, big part of my boat that makes it different from most other boats that you will see for sale. As I put an entire teak exterior, the only mahogany on my boat is the hatches, the forward hatch, the middle hatch, and uh, the, the frame around the cockpit hatch. They've been kept in decent shape, in good shape. In fact, I'm having them varnished, sort of down and varnished this winter while I'm away. Uh, the main portholes are unique. They're cast oval portholes were cast custom cast from patterns which were loaned to me by Larry Party. I have a full wind vane, which is the uh, wind vane that Larry Party designed. I built it myself. But Mike Anderson, my friend in Newport Beach, makes these commercially. I built my own, and it works great. It sailed me all the way across the Atlantic. I hardly touched the tiller all the way across the Atlantic. If you want to be a true blue water sailor, you need to have this wind vane on your boat if you have a Bristol Channel Cutter. And if you don't, uh, then you need to have some sort of auto helm or self-steering. So anyway, if you have an interest in this, be sure you reach out to me. Uh, you can write me at Franz. Number one at medsailor.com, Franz one at medsailor.com, and we can talk about it. I haven't put together my schedule for next winter, but I'm going to basically break it up into about six different legs. So probably you join me for about a week at a time, and then move on. Then the next crew would join me, and so forth, on on up to Puerto Rico, where I I'm hoping to leave the boat. Over the next summer, I guess it's not the winter, I'm summering the boat now.